The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Father, would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to believe what you have revealed to us in this word. We are incapable without the work of your spirit. So we pray now that, Father, you would come, light a fire within us, to do what only you can do, and transform us by this word. Father, we love you, we trust you, and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Go and return to your feet, please. In reverence to the reading of the Holy Word of God, we continue our verse-by-verse study of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We come now to this final section in chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 3. We'll read this morning verse 14 all the way through verse 21. This is the holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient Word of God. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. All God's people say. So you very likely recall that we have just concluded with verses 2 through 13 of this third chapter in Ephesians that we've just concluded with a a lengthy digression from the Apostle Paul. You remember that he started out to pray at the beginning of this chapter. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 1 says that for this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. So Paul begins to pray. He makes reference of his current state there in prison. And he realizes that this might be a very troubling reminder to the saints that are there in Ephesus. Remembering that it is through him that God has brought the gospel to their ears. And so there was surely room for doubt as they understood that he was now locked in chains. They may have had some questions running through their ears. And and, and one of those may have been something like, well, then is Paul's message untrue? Paul speaks a whole lot about us being seated with Christ in the heavenly places and all that Christ has accomplished on our behalf. That he is the head of all things, yes, over even his body, the church. And and how can Paul's message be true that Christ Jesus is victorious if he now, a messenger for Christ, is locked in chains? Maybe they were wondering if his message not only was untrue, but maybe he had lost favor with God. Maybe this was punishment from God for some wrongdoing from from Paul. Or or, or maybe it just meant that God's purposes had failed. Yeah, this was God's plan to unite all things under the headship of Christ. But maybe God just fell a little bit short. Maybe his purposes had been thwarted. And so does this mean now that we're still alienated from the people and promises of God as Gentiles? Does this mean that there's no place among the Jews for us once among the nations of the world? Are we still lost? Hopeless and without God in the world. And so Paul, surely aware of all these thoughts and doubts, he determines that he's going to take this digression and remind them about the grace, the powerful working of God in his life. It's like he's calling time out and saying, let's just remember how we got here. Let's remember how God in his grace and the powerful working of his spirit, he not only called me into his sheepfold, but he called me to be a shepherd. How he entrusted to me the mystery of Christ. How he revealed to me the truth that the Gentiles have full inclusion with the Jewish people in God's kingdom 
and in his family. Let's remember how he used me then to come and preach this good news to you so that you yourself can have bold and confident access before the Father. Let's remember that all that God is doing in this administration of his plan, let us not forget that this is all in accordance with God making known to even the heavenly rulers and authorities his manifold wisdom. All of this is but a thread in this multicolored robe that God is building, that this is all in accordance with God's plan. That's why he finishes that section, that digression, with verse 13, where he says, So I ask you, therefore, not to lose heart over what I'm suffering, which is your glory. Now, you'll notice that Paul doesn't make light of his suffering. Paul doesn't rejoice in suffering for suffering's sake. He doesn't find good in being in prison just for the sake of being in prison. So he doesn't ask them to think little or to make light of the fact that he is there in prison. And he doesn't ask them not to have concern for him. Oftentimes throughout Paul's letters, you'll find him writing to the churches saying, I thank you for your concern for me. I welcome your prayers. I thank you for your gifts of kindness that you've expressed. And so he's not saying don't have any concern for me as I am locked in chains here in prison. But what he is telling them. Much like the passage that David read earlier, what he is telling them is, look beyond the seen to the unseen. Look beyond the passing. Look, look beyond the temporal. Look beyond the physical. Look to heaven, for that is where your hope is. Don't think in this linear plane of just what's right in front of you in this moment. I spent so much time sweeping you up into these heavenly places to give you a much more cosmic view. So he's not telling them don't lose heart. I mean, he's not telling them don't have concern for me. He's saying don't lose heart. Look beyond this to the glory. Look to the glory that God is bringing even in my imprisonment. Now we know ultimately the glory that is to be had is God's glory. That this body he's building, this church from Gentiles and Jews, it says something to the world. Just being the church. Just our existence as sinners who have been called out of the world and into the family of God. It expresses something about God's power and his love and his goodness and his wisdom. So ultimately, the glory that's being revealed, even in my imprisonment, is I am willing to let go of the things of this world that I may have more of Christ. It says something of the value of God. It makes his glory known. But, but not only does this lead to the glory of God, as David read earlier, it leads to his glory. This is to my own glory. He says this is a light and momentary affliction. We know that Paul's life was filled with suffering once he determined he was going to follow Christ Jesus. Beatings and starvation, stoning. Eventually he would have his head lopped off. So this light and momentary affliction, this, this passing season that may be the whole of your life, this passing season, it is, it is as nothing compared to the glory that God is working in this moment. And you've got to hear me tell you this. I've, Every time we come to passages like this, I feel like I've, I've got to hit, hit pause and look you in the eye and remind you. The story of the Christian life is not one of bad things happen, but God makes it up to you later. The story of the Christian life is not you suffer now, but hey, there'll be some good down the line, maybe in heaven. The story of the Christian life is God is doing good for you right now in the suffering. As you suffer, you can trust that the God of the universe is working out glory for you. He's doing good for you that would not otherwise come and so that you can find an opportunity to rejoice in the suffering. Not for the suffering's sake, but because you trust it in the hand of your good father. He is doing you good. He is preparing for you glory. But you notice he wasn't just talking about God's glory, was he? He wasn't just talking about his own glory, was he? What did he say? That this is for your glory. What I am suffering is your glory. Now we remember why Paul's in prison. It's expressly because he has preached this gospel to the Gentiles. He's refused to keep this thing bound up within himself. He continued to, proclaim, continued to proclaim the good news of Christ Jesus to these filthy Gentile dogs, these outsiders. And you remember that when Christ Jesus called him into this ministry, he said to Ananias, that is the Lord, said to Ananias, he said, I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. 
This, this wasn't paying your dues. This wasn't proving yourself worthy. He said, there's a path through which Paul will walk and he will suffer much that my name may be known for his good and for the good of those that hear this message. And so you remember Acts 21 tells us that there was a Gentile from Ephesus. Trophimus was his name. And you remember that the Jews believed that Paul had brought this man into the temple and that because of this, there was an uprising and now he's a prisoner. I'm a prisoner of Christ, compelled by the love of Christ, constrained by the love of Christ, but it's for your sake that I'm in these chains. But I ask you not to lose hope because it is for your glory. This is a way in which God is working, not just to your good, but ultimately to your glory. Now this was not just the story at this moment in Paul's life, but throughout the whole of his, of his ministry. We come to the end of his life, his letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy. He knows that his death is imminent and still he's preaching this same news. He says in 2 Timothy 2.8, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel for which I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Even as I am bound in this place, I know that the word of God cannot be bound. I know that the word of God is doing a work even now. And I know that that word is doing the work of bringing God's chosen people into glory bringing them into the body of Christ Jesus, that someday they would see him and be as he is. He's working for us a particular weight of glory. That's the message for the whole of Paul's life, the whole of his gospel ministry. He recognizes this, and this is how he endures this suffering. Even if you're not in chains for Christ the way that Paul is, in the middle of your suffering, you can trust God is working for my glory. He's working for his glory. He's working for the glory of his people. Therefore, I endure, trusting that his word is not bound, even as I myself am bound. And you can imagine how easy it would have been for the Apostle Paul to lose hope. We spent a lot of time talking about the nature of the Apostle's ministry, much like every other shepherd or overseer or elder or pastor. It was a ministry of the word that Paul was called to be a preacher. He was called to be a proclaimer of the good news of Jesus Christ. He was called to go out and make the gospel known, to open his mouth and to proclaim to any who would hear this good news. But suddenly, Paul's not able to travel. I want you to think about how much time in Paul's ministry he spent locked up in chains. He was limited. He couldn't come to these people that he desired to come to and look in the eye and continue to encourage and exhort, to continue to preach the gospel that God might bring more into this kingdom. Now, for this moment, he could continue to write. For this moment, he had opportunity to continue to get this message out through writing. But that's a whole lot different than being in Ephesus for three plus years among the saints. It's a slower process. There's no email. There's no texts. You can imagine it's a much slower process to, to write and then to send out that letter than to wait back for news or a response to come. And yet he does not view himself as one that is hindered in any way in his work. He says, I trust that the word is not bound. I trust that the word that has already gone forth, that it will do the work for which God has purposed. But there's also work that I can do even as I'm in prison. What's Paul doing here? He's praying. Paul says that they can, they can bound my hands and my feet that I'm unable to go to you. I can, cannot come and look you in the eye and encourage you in this moment. And there may come a day when they chop off my hands and restrict my ability to write you letters. They can gouge out my eyes and they can cut out my tongue. They can sew my mouth shut. They can pin me down to the floor in this place, but they cannot restrict my bold and confident access before the Father. They cannot keep me from praying. We need to be reminded this morning that this is not some auxiliary ministry. This is not a secondary ministry of the Apostle Paul. You remember that in Acts 6, whenever the church seems to be calling there the first deacons, those who await on the physical needs of the saints. You remember that the apostles said there that we will devote ourselves to what? To prayer and to the ministry of the word. I don't think it's a coincidence that prayer comes first. We will de devote ourselves to the ministry of prayer and to the ministry of the word. That prayer is an essential part of the pastor's work. 
Again, I say it's not an add-on. It's not an accessory or an auxiliary or something like this. And yet at the same time, how horribly is it overlooked? Not just in the life of the pastor, but in the life of every minister, you all as ministers. You all at some level of those who have been trusted with the word of God and are meant to minister it into the life of your friends and your family and your children and your co-workers. Even here being used of God to build up the church. How often do we neglect the ministry of prayer? What does he say here in Acts 6? He says that we will devote ourselves to prayer. He doesn't just say we will give some time to prayer. We'll make for ourselves a quiet time every morning for prayer. What does he say? Devote. You know what devotion means. It's a determination. It's a priority. It's a thing that comes first. Now I have to confess to you that not only is this an area that every pastor I, that I know of struggles at some level in, there's also this weird dynamic. When people come to my office and they knock on the door and they, I, I welcome them in, I tell them to come in, and they find me sitting at my desk reading my Bible or studying something on my computer screen or, or reading some book, I don't, have any, I don't have any qualms with that. I feel like okay, you found me doing what I'm supposed to do. But sometimes when people come to my office and they find me, I pray in my back study. Some of you probably know this. And that's not the only place I pray, but when I really seek to go into the, into the presence of God for specific set aside times of prayer, I go and I kneel on the floor in my back study. And people will often come and they'll knock on the door. And you know how you come out of your back, I don't know about you, but if a long, intense period of prayer, I usually have my glasses off and I come out and I look like a wild man. And sometimes I have this, oh, they've, have I not been doing what I'm supposed to do today? I was just praying. I wasn't preparing for my sermon. I wasn't counseling someone in need. All I was doing was just praying. Do you see how wrong-headed that is? He said, no, we will devote ourselves to prayer. We depend upon prayer. And so we've got to check ourselves and ask, is this the way we think of prayer? As though it was some type of an add-on? Now, what you'll find oftentimes is that ministers of the word, they will pray and they will say, yes, I am, in, I am in complete dependence upon prayer and God's power. But then if you listen to their prayers, all they ever pray for is for God to enable them. God to increase their abilities or maybe to give them some type of opportunity. But really, it's a little more than just a means to something else. God, would you make me a hero? God, would you enhance my abilities in my flesh to study the word, to understand the word, to preach the word, but they never view it as a real ministry in and of itself. The prayer is, again, as I say, is maybe just a, a turbo booster to the real ministry. It's a fire that's meant to be lit under the thing that I've really been called to do. And, and, and certainly there are places where we find the Apostle Paul praying and asking God to give him the ability to preach. We're going to find it at the end of this letter, Ephesians 6, 19. He says, pray. Pray for what? That I may speak boldly in the ministry of the gospel. The minister can't speak boldly. He can't understand the word of God. He can't proclaim it unless God works. So it's not inappropriate for us to pray that God would enable us, that he would give us opportunities. But what happens when the apostle Paul isn't able to preach any longer? If the whole of his prayer life with regards to his ministry has just been about, God, give me abilities. God, give me opportunities. What happens when his abilities fade and his opportunities are taken away? Is prayer then no longer valid? Is he not able to accomplish anything? Because beloved, you realize that that day comes for every man if he lives long enough. I, I find myself, even at the age of 45 or whatever I am, I find my cognitive abilities aren't what they once were. I understand more of God and I've grown, I believe, in wisdom and in knowledge. But my ability to recall as quickly as I once was, to remember what I was doing, at times, I'm well aware, even at this young age, of the fact that my abilities will fade. And there's very likely to come a day, even yes, here in this country, when many of my opportunities are restricted externally. But what of prayer? Is prayer a meaningful ministry? Is prayer a thing where God can actually accomplish something? Well, absolutely. The Apostle Paul seems to believe this is real ministry. This isn't just an add-on. And I want you to think about just here within this letter. What does he do? 
He preaches the word of God. He proclaims the goodness of God. Go back to chapter one and that first great prayer that we saw there. He lays upon them this, this magnificent doctrine. As I told you earlier, he sweeps us up into heavenly places and, and he gives us this completely cosmic view of salvation. God the Father planning from eternity past. God the Son coming and accomplishing in time. God the Holy Spirit coming and applying to the lives of the saints. He, he tells us all of these unsearchable things, these things that we will never, ever, ever fully master. And then he immediately goes before the Father in prayer and he says, God, would you enlighten the eyes of their heart? Would you give them the ability to see what has already been done on their behalf? That's what he was praying for there. He's saying, God, help them to know and to understand that which is true. Yes, I want you to help me to speak boldly and clearly so that my words make some sense to their ears. But he's saying, God, it's got to go deeper than that. And the only way it's going to go deeper than that is if I come before you in prayer and you work. If you send your spirit to do the piece that I can't do, I can't speak to your soul. You get this. I can't speak to your heart. Only God can do that. Yes, through my words, through the power of the working of his word, he can use ordinary earthen vessels and above and beyond and outside of that, the voice of God calling men to life. So Paul recognizes he must devote himself to this ministry of prayer. He knows even amongst the saints, this world, this, this word and this ministry will count to nothing unless I pray. And so this isn't, again, I say this isn't an add on to the ministry of the word. It's an essential ministry. Now, this doesn't diminish the work of preaching. This doesn't diminish the requirement of the pastor and the preacher to, to study God's word and to understand it and to be well prepared. To exhort and encourage his people to respond to the word. But again, I say, you find in the lives of most pastors and most teachers and most parents that the preparation to teach the word always takes a priority over prayer. Let me ask you a question. Particularly those of you that have found yourself in roles of official teaching. Whether you've taught an adult or a children's Sunday school class or maybe just within your own home, you've led Bible studies. Why is it that we find ourselves perfectly capable of spending hour upon hour upon hour in study and in preparation to preach and we can't manage even a half hour before God? I submit to you that this is because it's a whole lot easier to talk about God than to stand naked and exposed before this same God. It's very easy for me to hold God before your eyes to cause, call you to open them wide, to stand there naked and transparent and exposed before the living God. It's a very easy thing for me to hold him before you. It's something altogether different for me to experience my own sense of nakedness and desperation and need. Now, I think this is on part because of the work of the enemy. He takes these good things like the ministry of the word or caring for the physical needs of the saints, or whatever your particular ministry is, he takes these things and he can make them seem so large in our own eyes. Convince us that the only way our ministry can ever be effective is within our own power and our own ability, that, that we're dependent upon our own knowledge and skill set. If we're ever going to be successful ministers, that we neglect the ministry of prayer. But again, I say more than this, it's about our own fear of God. And so what do we do? We don't just not pray, but we rush in and we rush out as quickly as possible. We rush into his presence, we tell him the thing that we need, and then we run out. Why? Because we're afraid he might actually start dealing with our own hearts. We're afraid that word that is like a double-edged sword, that, that scalpel in the hands of the master surgeon, it might come and actually carve away some things. We're afraid that the refining fire of this holy, holy, holy God might actually burn away some things that we've grown quite fond of. So we don't stay there long enough for him to look behind our back at the thing that we're hiding. We don't stay there long enough lest he looks at me and says, yeah, but what about you? We rush in and we rush out. For fear that if we remain there too long, we might find ourselves like Jacob walking the rest of our lives with a limp. Having strived with the holy God. But Paul wouldn't make this mistake. Paul would never get too far in his teaching. He would never get too far down the line of doctrine before he ran right back into the presence of the Father. 
before he went right back to the source of it all. Falls down before him in prayer. So having finished chapter 2 and another magnificent teaching. I mean, he's just piling up doctrine upon doctrine. Why has it taken us 75 sermons to get to this point? Because this is deep and heavy things. And yet no sooner does he get the doctrine off of his lips than he returns to the Father. And that's what we find here. So I submit to you that we do well to learn to study the prayers of saints of old. Not just in scripture. There's a book, book of Puritan prayers called the Valley of Visions. I would encourage you to get a copy of that. And it's not scripture. And I know that some people have great hesitancy to ever read someone else's prayers. And I understand that because it can become stagnant and formal and rote and meaningless. That's certainly one ditch over here. There can also be great blessing in seeing what it looks like. Men who have devoted the whole of their lives to knowing and seeing and abiding with God and hearing their heart in prayer. But one step better than that, of course, is to read the inspired prayers of Scripture. Read the prayers of Nehemiah, Nehemiah 9. How many weeks did we read that prayer together? Read through the Psalms and see the prayers of King David, a man who knew how to sin really, really, really well, but knew how to repent even better. Read the prayers of Jesus. Go read John 17 and understand the son's heart towards the father in prayer and the hearing there of the apostles. And of course, you can read the prayers of inspired prayers of the apostle Paul. Test your own prayers in accordance with these. Not, not, not for the beauty. A, a great prayer is not based on the, the, the the language is not based on the cadence. It not, it's not based on the flowery language that one brings to the prayer. It's not based on tone or based on cadence. It's based on the heart. And what we will find in these prayers are men who knew how to be in the presence of God. They knew that they had bold and confident access before God. And they knew how to just be there. So I ask you to hear the hearts of, heart of this particular prayer as we spend the next few weeks working together through it. Seeing men who know what it looks like, particularly the Apostle Paul, what does it look like to be in communion with God? So let's work line by line through this and just, we'll see how far we get this morning. And I, I recognize that in my own Bible reading, and so surely it must be the case with some of you, we get to the prayers in Scripture and we go, yeah, 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 he's praying. I get that, I know how to pray, and we rush through. But I submit that for some of you, this particular portion, this prayer, maybe one of the most magnificent prayers in the whole of Scripture, this might be one of the most transformative studies in the whole of Ephesians for you. Really wrestling with what am I meant to do when I go before my Father in prayer. So what you're going to see here is that this thing breaks out really into three sections. We see in verse 14 and verse 15, right there in the middle, or right there at the beginning, excuse me, we see the Apostle Paul's posture, his stance before God. You see at the end in verse 20 and verse 21, you see Paul concluding with a, a beautiful doxology as he was, he was often doing. And in the middle there, verse 16 to verse 19, we see Paul's specific requests. If I was a good preacher, I would use some type of alliteration. I would say it was like um, posture and petition and praise. How about that? But I don't believe in that. So verse 14, he says, for this reason, and this, see, this is why I say we must slow down. Because this is such an obvious thing that we probably otherwise miss it. He says, for this reason, Paul had a reason for prayer. How often are our prayers thoughtless and mindless and without aim? How often do you find that all you're doing is saying your prayers and never praying? When your children are little, you, you, you teach them all the little sing-songy prayers, and that's good, and that's right. Um, uh, God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. Because food does not rhyme with good. But we teach them these sing-songy prayers, and those are good, and those are right. We, we teach them as much as their little hearts and their little minds can, can reckon with at that moment. Maybe we teach them to recite the Lord's Prayer and they have it in, 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 in their minds and they can, man, without like a little parrot, without even any thought, they can just recite it. But how many adults never move beyond that and all they ever do is say their prayers? They never really learn to pray and part of that reason is they have no reason. They have no purpose. They have no aim in coming before God. 
But Paul hoped for something. He had a reason for being there. Now, ultimately, as we expressed last week, what's the ultimate reason? What's his ultimate aim? He wanted God. It can't just be his stuff. It can't just be his gifts. Ultimately, what he wanted was God. But he had purpose in coming before him. He had purpose in coming into his presence. Another thing about kids, right? Sometimes they'll start a sentence and they don't even know where they're going. Like they're just talking to hear themselves talk. And eventually, after 15 uhs and you know, you're like, well, get to it, man. Now, thankfully, our father is much more patient than us. But how many of us pray just like that? Paul knew why he was there. He understood his purpose. And so he says, for this reason. And the reason seems to be pointing all the way back. Remember, he started this prayer at the beginning of chapter 3 with the same word, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner. So it seems as though he's pointing back to what came at the end of chapter 2. You remember at the end of chapter 2, he says that for through him, that's Christ, verse 18, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. A, a lot of what he's reiterated there in chapter 3. But you see, he's praying in light of what he's already said. He's praying in light of the fact, for this reason, because I know that you are already those in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. You, you can't pray the same way for the lost as you can the believer. You can't pray for those that are outside the family of God the same way that you could pray for those that are within. You do pray. It's a different set of prayers. It's a whole different mindset. And so he's coming before God saying, God, I'm praying for the saints. I'm praying for the believers who are in Ephesus. I'm praying for those in whom your spirit dwells. Again, this may seem obvious, but he's not only praying with a purpose, but he's praying with God's purpose in mind. He's praying in accordance with God's will as best a man can understand. He says, this is God's will for you, as those in whom his spirit dwells. Not only is he praying in accordance with God's will, he's praying for what the saints, because it's God's will, most desperately need. As you will find as we begin, we won't get to the, we won't get to the specific petitions this week. That'll be next week before we touch on those, God willing. But what you'll find is he's not praying just about the externals. He's not just praying God feed them and clothe them and care for them. He's not just praying God protect them and God be with them. He's praying about those things that God has already expressed are important and therefore are most critical for the believers to have. I take it one step further. Not only is he praying in accordance with God's will and therefore what's best for the saints, he's also praying for that which they would not have unless God gave it. What's the point in making a request? What's the point in going to God and making this request unless you know the thing that they need must come from your hand or they won't receive it? So he's praying for the things that are most critical for them to have. And it seems to me that there are three main requests. And they're, they're marked out here in your Bible. If you're reading from the ESV, they seem to be marked out by the word that. It's, it's henna in Greek, the word that or so that. It's, it's a statement of purpose. It's a statement of why he is bending his knee before the Father. So I want you to look right there at the very beginning of verse 16. Do you see that? That, according to the riches of his glory, we might be strengthened by the Spirit and indwelt by the Son. That seems to be the first purpose there. Then the second half of verse 17, um, after that dash, you see that you, that you being rooted and grounded in love, that you may be strengthened to understand the immeasurable love of Christ. And then finally, the ultimate purpose for this prayer, we see it there in, uh, in verse 19, the second half of 19, that, after the comma, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So it seems that there are these three purposes that he has in mind. And you'll notice as we work through this that Paul's purposes aren't just individual, but, but they're corporate. He's going to talk about your heart. And if you were to look to the original Greek, you'd find that he's talking in the, in the plural He's talking about y'all's heart. Paul never gets too deep down the path of praying for individual saints before God draws him to pray for the company of saints, for the whole of his body. 
And so what he's praying for here specifically, as I said earlier, was not just physical needs, but spiritual. He's praying for sanctification. He's praying for divine enablement. He's praying that they would be, uh, uh, as those in whom the Spirit dwells, that they would now experience the fullness of what that means. Remember, the first great prayer there at the end of chapter 1, it seems to be, God, help them know the things that are true of them in Christ. Now here at the end of chapter 3, he seems to be praying, now God, make true in them the things that are true in Christ. And this really is a, it's, it's a, moment, of, it's a moment of transition. I've told you that the book of Ephesians breaks into two sections. The first three talk about the indicative, telling us the things that are true in Christ Jesus. And then the imperative comes from then on out. And so what we're in here is kind of a passing of, of the baton. There's a transition period from the doctrine to the acting, to the working this thing out. You remember back in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, he talked about the fact that we are God's workmanship. We're a poem. We're a poem that God is writing. That we're God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do these good works that God has prepared beforehand. Now he's going to talk about God. How are you going to do this work? How are you going to write this poem? How are you going to work these things out? So verse 14, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Now, you notice I've been saying that this is a prayer from the Apostle Paul. And, and when we read the text, when I stood up in front of you and I, I read these words, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Everybody immediately knew that Paul was praying, right? Did any of you doubt that? But he doesn't say that he's praying, does he? Now, he does back in the first prayer. Chapter 1, verse 16, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. But here... He just says, I bow my knee before the Father. And immediately everybody knows Paul's praying. For many of us, this is the way that we were taught to pray as children, right? You, you, you knelt beside your bed and you, and you prayed. I told you, what do I do in my back study? I kneel before the Father. On Wednesday nights when we gather to pray in here, I kneel usually right there because I have a hard time getting all the way to the floor. So I kneel with my arms on this little bench. But he doesn't say that he's praying. He says that he's kneeling. So does that mean that kneeling then is the only proper physical posture in prayer? We know that's not the case. We know there are some who knelt in prayer. Paul here. What do you think about Daniel in Daniel 6? He says that he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. This was his pattern. This is how Daniel prayed. He got on his knees. But you know that often for the first century Jewish man, they would pray standing with their hands up towards heaven prepared to receive God and all that he is for them. And we know that Jesus talked about this posture of prayer. In Mark eleven twenty five, 25, he says, whenever you stand praying, whenever you stand praying, forgive anyone that you have anything against so that your father may see and forgive you. So we, we've got this posture of standing up, which would have been very common for them. Think about Jesus. We see his posture in the Garden of Gethsemane. Where was he? Face down before the Father. He was laying all the way flat with his face to the ground. There's other passages where it seems as though the men were gathered together in the synagogues and they were seated, 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 seating, seated. They were on their benches. <laughs> and so it doesn't seem that this is a prescribed physical posture, but he says, I bow my knees. Now, this, the word that is translated there, it's only used four times in, in the Greek New Testament. It's used here, it's used in Romans 11, it's used in Romans 14, always kind of with the same, the same idea. We see it most clearly in Philippians 2, 9, a very well-known passage to all of you, I'm sure. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every other name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee shall bow. This is a picture of submission and honor and worship. That this is the posture of the heart in prayer before God. Submission. You are God and I am not. Whatever you say that I will do. You'll often hear people quoting, I think it was Billy Graham that said, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. You can remove that, I believe it. The Bible says it. That settles it. God says it. That settles it. I bow before you in submission. You are the king. 
Whatever you say. So we must not think that we can ever come before God in prayer saying, God, I will do that which I determine I'm going to do. Whether it be holding on to sin, whether it be sin by omission, whether it be refusing to walk forward in obedience. How, how often do you go before God in prayer about something and you, God, I will do this much. Here are my limits. I will go this far and no further. You may not say that outwardly, but that's your heart. What, what do you put on an engine to make sure it doesn't go too fast, like a governor or something like this? We say, God, this is what I make available to you for use in your service. But my children, off limits. My marriage, off limits. My money, my ministry, my life, off limits. We're going to come to God truly in prayer. We come with hearts of submission. And we see this. I think we see a very beautiful physical picture of this in the triumphal entry. You remember that there wasn't only palm branches that were being waved there. There was something that was laid on the road before Christ and the donkey. Remember what it was? It was the people's clothes, the robes. You know what that was a picture of? God, we are below you. We are beneath you. We submit to you. You say it, and that settles it. But it's also an outward expression of, of honor. It's not just making myself low, but it's making clear how high he is. I bow my knee. I bow my head. I make myself low. I'd go lower than low if I could because I know who I am. I know myself more fully now that I stand in your presence than I did before. Again, that's why so many men will not go before God in prayer. Not meaningful prayer. Not slow prayer. Not prayer when everything is on the table before God. Because it's there that you recognize your sin, perhaps for the very first time. It's there that you feel real conviction. And men don't like to feel low. We like to feel good about ourselves. We live in a society that's told us that man's biggest problem is the lack of self-esteem. You know, it's a lie straight from the pit of hell. And so we see something about this posture in Jesus' parable. Remember you had the Pharisee there praying in the temple? Thank you that I'm not like other men, especially not that man. And he says that the tax collector was standing far off. How was he praying? He was standing. He was standing far off and he wouldn't even lift his eyes up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. So it's not a posture of the body, it's a posture of the heart. It's a heart that knows its sin, that knows the holiness of God and knows his filth as he stands in the presence of this God. But, but wait a minute. Didn't we just spend an hour last week talking about bold and confident access? Didn't we just spend a week talking about what it means to come into the presence of God with boldness? What does boldness mean? I told you last week, it means to speak freely and openly. Not having to measure out your words, always concerned that he's going to chase you away for one misstep. And, and confidence means I'm, I'm assured of the outcome. I'm assured that he will receive me and I'm assured he'll only give me that which is good, namely himself. So yes, you come boldly, you come confidently, but you never come irreverently. You never come casually. You never come cavalierly. There, there's this mindset that has pervaded the modern church where Men seem to think that the more casually you come, the more, the more cavalierly you stroll in the presence of God, talking to God almost like he's your buddy, or making jokes in the way you pray, that this shows spiritual maturity. This shows a closeness with God. This shows that you have really become spiritual because you're not stuck with, with any kind of understanding of written prayers, and, and, and you, don't, you don't have this sense of, no, I, I make myself low because I know how high you truly are. No, I'm closer with God than that. I've, I've achieved more sanctification in my life than this. And have you ever, you ever been around somebody that really wanted to be in the end? They wanted to show you how much they knew somebody else, and so they try to take jabs at them, and they try to be jokey jokes with them. And then the other person looks to them and says, I'm, I'm sorry, who are you? I don't think you know me like that. Is it just what Christ warns against? There'll be some in that final day who call me Lord, Lord. I say, depart, I never knew you. I submit to you that many of those harps that think they can make light and flippant work of coming into God's presence in prayer, they will find in that last day, he does not know them. 
that many of those people that would make worship and make prayer and make the study of God's word into something light and flippant, oftentimes it's one of two things that's at play. Number one, they have no clue who the holy, holy, holy God really is. Or number two, you ever know those people that when they become uncomfortable, they laugh? It's, it's just a thing, right? It's not a sinful thing. It's not a wrong thing. It's just some people, they just have a nervous laugh. Or they make jokes because they don't like the, the weight of a moment. I find oftentimes that pastors and congregations that do that, it's because they know deep down we're holding on by smoke and mirrors. They perhaps caught a glimpse of this holy, holy, holy God. And in that glimpse of the holy, holy, holy God, they know something of their own sin and they can't stand that weight. And so they fill the room with jokes and, and, and brevity and, and lightness, flippancy before God to try to keep that weight off of them. But I remind you that everywhere in scripture we see men coming into the presence of God. Where do we find them? On their face. What do we find of the seraphim in Isaiah 6? Sinless. Holy angels. Powerful angels covering their feet and covering their faces. Unable to look upon, perfectly look upon the unveiled glory of God. The closer you get to God, the more you recognize your creatureliness. The closer you get to God, the more you feel the weight of his glory. Robert Murray McShane, he was a Scottish minister in the early 19th century and a, a brilliant dude. New Greek alphabet by four, he graduated high school by eight, graduated college by 14. He was a minister of God by 24 and dead by 29, a man who had been poured out all of his life poured out in service to the king. And if you ever come into my office, you'll find a large canvas on the wall immediately greeting you when you walk in. Those of you that have been there, you remember what it says? What a man is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing more. You kneel before the living God and you know exactly who you are. Not only do you know exactly who you are and your weakness and your sin and your failure, but it reveals your heart. Your prayers, they betray your heart. They reveal your priorities. They reveal your thoughts about God. They reveal your selfishness. They reveal your weakness. I told you how desperately I want to be like James, the Lord's brother. That they called him old camel knees because he spent hour upon hour upon hour on his knees before God. And yet I find myself, after just one hour on my knees before God, physically giving out, mentally having given out long before that, having constantly to fight to bring my mind and my heart back to God and not pull away to the worries of the day. My own body trembling and, and, and weakness. I'm still a young man. What happens when I'm 80? What a man is on his knees, that will expose what you are before God. That you are and nothing more. But again, I tell you, this is why men pull away because they cannot bear the weight of God bearing down upon them. They cannot bear his glory sucking all the oxygen out of the room. They cannot bear not being the center of the universe. They cannot bear having their sins exposed. They cannot bear coming to the realization, I don't love God the way I swore I did. So we refuse to spend time before God in prayer. And so the key to all this, I see I'm running short on time, and so you've got to hear me tell you this then. How can I come boldly and come? If all that stuff is true, if all that stuff is true, then what hope do I ever have to come boldly and confidently before God? What's found in this, what does he say? I bow before the Father. He is my Father. Some earlier manuscripts have the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Reminder that in Christ Jesus, he's my Father. That in Christ Jesus, I come before the Father and he doesn't see my sin. What does he see? The perfect righteousness of his son. As I come and I kneel before the Father, if I am in Christ Jesus and trusting in him alone. This is what it means to pray in the name of Christ. This isn't dropping a name to the bouncer at the bar. This is coming dependent wholly upon his righteousness, the righteousness of another. That you, he looks to you and he sees that and he sees you cleansed of all your sin, even your sin in prayer. Do you hear me? I find myself sinning in prayer. And I've got to continue to draw my heart back to know in Christ Jesus, that sin's been dealt with. Even now, as I am sinful in prayer, the Father is looking to me and seeing his beloved son. 
He is rejoicing that I've come to him. He is delighting in my prayers as weak and frail and selfish as they may be. He says, you come to me as father because of Christ. You come and then you don't rush. Remember, what's your goal in prayer? If all your kids want from you is money, they can just come running. Dad can have 20 bucks. Thank you. Zoop. But if what they desire is you and your presence and to be with you, then you're like John, the apostle John in the upper room on the night when Christ was betrayed, leaning back with his head against his breast. You're like Mary bowing at Christ's feet. This word, he says that, that about toward the father. He says here about before, but it can also be translated as to or, or toward. This is the same word that we see in John 1 where he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with the Father. This is toward the Father. This is face to face with the Father. This is chest to chest with the Father. This is, I'm coming to the Father's presence and I want to be with Him. Based on the assurance of God's word, you have Him there. Why would you rush out? If what you really want is the Father and He is giving Himself over to you in prayer, why would you ever rush in and out of His presence? So you come before the presence of the Father, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You come and you linger and you sit and you watch and you wait, trusting He will give you that which is best, primarily Himself. Father, we praise You and we thank You. Uh, we've, we've just, we've only dipped our, our toe into the waters of what you invite us to come and do in prayer. So Father, I, I pray that you help us just this week, just from what we've seen, Father, that you would transform our prayer life. That we would be a people who come before you in prayer and, and in fasting as we have considered over these last few weeks. That we would learn to come and just be in your presence. That we would come, learn to come and enjoy this intimacy and affection that you offer us in your presence. Father, teach us to pray. Maybe for the first time in our lives, teach us what it means to really come in communion with you. To really pray. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.